so this is class four, and as I mentioned to you at the beginning or at the end of last week, um, tonight I am going to cut our class a bit short. We will we will go no later than about nine. It is conceivable. I'll, just, I'll say we'll go somewhere between eight thirty and nine. Is that okay? Nobody's going to sue me for that extra half hour, or, you know. All the extra time to do homework. That would be good. I will, in fact, even allow you to sit right here. I'll leave the building open, and you can do that. Just close it up behind you. Okay? So, um, for fun, well, okay, maybe not fun, but uh, these are are fun and or uh, points of interest. So, how do you share the gospel with people who don't understand the gospel, or worse yet, people who have grown up in a society and or a church tradition that teaches a different gospel? So when you say gospel, or you say, are you a Christian, they don't even know for sure what you mean. Because what that meant to them is different. One of the ways to do that is to go back and say, well, okay, let's, let's not worry about our tradition or your tradition. Let's go back and look at what it was in the beginning, when the gospel was first proclaimed. And there are some concepts, of course, each one re- represented by a word, right? And uh, these concepts, and, and I'm, I'm much more concerned if you get the concepts than the words, but the words are indeed Greek words, and the concepts are of that Greek word, not so much that they're culturally Greek, but we've got to be careful that we understand what those words mean. So, does anybody recognize the word on top? You said it very well, because I actually forgot the... Um, Accent. There we go. <coughs> Excuse me. And what does peace peace mean? We have actually discussed it in here. How many of you had a question mark behind what you just said? <laughs> I heard lots of question marks in, in the words. Uh, faith, uh, belief, trust, um, faithfulness, Faithfulness has a different ending because it is, uh, it's kind of like the N-E-S-S ending in English. There's faith and then there's the quality of having faith, which is faithfulness. Uh, but it's the same word, it's the same root, it, it's simply the, the part of the uh, speech it's playing in the, in the uh, sentence. And of course, this is noun, so verb is going to be different. Um, Faith or faithfulness is what our relationship with God is predicated on. And we don't get to change that. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul says. That's what all of the New Testament says. In fact, the Old Testament actually is quite consistent with that. If you you study what Jesus taught, you will find it all rooted in the Old Testament. And it means the concept of believing something, meaning an intellectual assent, and therefore putting your trust in it, because you truly do believe it to be true. So one of the things we find is people who say, well, I believe in God. Well, what in the world does that mean? And usually, if their life doesn't change, it means, well, I've got this vague suspicion that the deity that we talk about probably exists, but he may or may not have anything to do with the way we talk about him. And it, and it 
is not unlike, and forgive me if this bothers you, but I find it to be absolutely true even in that context. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the 12 steps? Typical 12-step program says that you should have a higher power. And uh, the archetypal program, AA, defines a higher power, higher, 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 higher power as God as you understand him. May I suggest to you that's a good definition of idolatry. Think about it. God is not as you understand him. He's not in our image, whether it's by our hands or by our mind. So faith is understanding who he is by his own words and believing that, grasping it, trusting him, and then living by it. Now, when you have faith, you're going to do two things. And they're going to come across as one in English, because we actually tend to translate both of those words as the same word. And I told you last week I would bring these up. Does anybody remember? I mean, just from saying last week I'll bring them up, you should automatically... Oh, yes, I remember exactly what he's talking about. And yet you don't. I can tell. Somebody pronounce that for me. What is this? What? Meta? Did you say know you? No, yeah. Okay. Meta, no, yeah. Yeah. Or, Brian. Uh, it'd be about the same then. Yeah. Okay. Now, can anybody tell me what it means? It is a compound word. Probably doesn't help because we haven't gotten to those two words in our vocabulary yet. What? No, that would be mega. Yeah, not, no, it's not, not close to mega. It's a different word. So meta actually can mean a number of things, particularly as it comes into English. But in this context, it's different or even uh, opposite. Like a, there's a change. Noya from nous. And we did actually refer to that briefly. I don't think that's in your, is that in the 500 list? Nush? No, 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 no. That would be an English word. And we're not speaking English. No, nush, there's a lexical form. It's, it's mind, but it's way more than what we think of mind. We think of mind as like almost the computer part of us, the mental processing. And nush is much broader than that. So change the mind. Okay? And the English word is repent. Did you have it? She had it. There we go. So, repentance is when we have faith. You can't repent without faith. You have no direction for the repentance. And we realize that that which we believe in and trust and want to be faithful to is not where our mind, our feelings, our will has been. So, we change it. We change our mind. So when Peter, in Acts 2.38, answers the question, brothers, what shall we do? Because the, the mob has been convinced 
that uh, Jesus is indeed the Messiah and they did indeed have him handed over to Pilate and had him crucified, that we're in trouble. What can we do? And he, he doesn't say belief. There's nowhere in Act 238 that talks about faith. Why do you suppose that is? Hint, I just told you. Because they already, they were convinced. See? So Peter's building on the faith that they are expressing by asking the very question. He didn't have to then say, okay, well, do you believe? So he would have asked the question if they didn't. So building on the, the belief that was there, he then says, repent. Now, there's another word for repent, not in that passage, but just to get the full flavor of it, it's, it's sometimes translated uh, repent. Epistrepho. And epistrepho means to turn around. So you get this full picture that repentance is not just mentally changing my mind, but it's turning around behaviorally and going the opposite direction too. So when we talk about repentance with somebody, if we're sharing our faith with somebody and they want to know, well, what does it mean to be Christian? How do I do that? I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who's part of this congregation in terms of participation. But from a background where there was a different definition of belonging and of what faithfulness was about. So, you know, we we keep hearing you talk about this, but what does that mean? So, we talk about these words. And it means to have faith, and then based on that faith, to change your mind and change your behavior. That's what repentance says. And then Peter said, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So I thought I'd throw that one in. What is this word? What? Baptizo. Did you hear the? There's a tone that goes with the word. Yes. Um, pardon? That's a zeta. See, it's below the line. Yeah, sigma is never above the line. It's a sloppy zeta. I'll grant you that. There, there should be. Let's see. Zeta should be more with a little corner in it. So. Yeah. They were there first. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we don't really have another alternative. So, Latito, do you see what it means or what it is? Well, it's, the lexical form is first person active, I baptize. So when, it, when it's just by itself for the purpose of discussing the word, typically it's going to be that form. Okay? And then when it's in context, the ending will change based on first person, second person, active. Uh, actually, in that passage, when Peter says, repent and be baptized, is that active? Not a trick question. No. No. Active is I do it. So if be baptized... It actually sounds passive. Repenting is active. Absolutely. It's a baptize. Sounds passive. Now, the weird thing is they don't translate it the way it actually is because it's actually middle voice, which is reflexive. So it would be really repent and get yourself baptized or even baptize yourself, which is not accurate to the context because they didn't do that. But repent and go get yourself baptized. And that's precisely what they did. Okay. Now, why, why do you suppose we've got vatizo instead of 
immerse. Because the word means not baptize. Baptize is a Greek word. It's not a translation. It means immerse or dip. In some cases, plunge. In no cases, by the way, sprinkle or pour. It just doesn't. The word is actually actively used today, still, in Greece. And it means the same thing. So why do you suppose we don't say John the Dipper or John the Immerser, other than the fact that we've got 500 years of English history that says that would sound weird to our ears. Little history lesson. This is part of the fun part. So um, this, this is actually, when I give it to you, number three on the list of things, the example of the usefulness of understanding the Greek. Sometimes it's understanding if you're, you're actually still using the Greek, and then, well, why is that? Vapizo, beta becomes what in English? B. B. Remember, we, I've got that too, so loud. Alpha is A, which looks exactly like the way I make an alpha. Sorry. Uh, P is P. Top? T. Iota? I. Zeta? Z. Okay, that's baptiz, which sounds just really weird. So we have an English ending, and we give E. All right, sloppy E, but it's still an E. Baptize. So why do you suppose we don't translate it? Well, remember the first time the, the New Testament was translated into English with the authority of the powers that be. It was authorized and therefore is still known technically as the authorized version. Who authorized it? King James. So we actually mostly call it the KJV or King James Version. But it's, it's actually the, the real name of it is the authorized version because it was very important for the translators at the time to have everybody know that they were authorized to do this. The reason for that is it was a capital crime to translate the Bible into the vernacular without authorization. In other words, if I'm English-speaking and I translate the Bible into English, but I don't have permission of the king, who, by the way, is in cahoots with the church. The king is supportive of the church, the church supportive of the king. Okay? So that's, that's not coincidental. If I don't have their permission, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed. And I might be killed in a really, really ugly way. I mean, they're killing and they're killing. And you put me in a little box and set fire to it, that's, I don't want that happening, right? They were quite serious about this. They executed people for this. There was one guy they even dug up and executed because he died before they could get to him. So they just wanted to make sure everybody understood, you're going to die for this one way or the other. Therefore, these guys respected, if not feared, those who authorized the translation. Now, here's another little historical thing. At this time, because the sword, which was held by the king, was in partnership with the church, which was the Roman church, if you taught what the Roman church said was not true, or something that cast them in a bad light, meaning you know, they're practicing something wrong, you're considered a heretic. The word heretic, by the way, is also simply transliterated from Greek. It means different, but different in a negative way. 
And guess what happened to heretics? Yeah, we're back to the killing thing. These guys killed people for this a lot. One of the heresies was teaching immersion. The only people that taught immersion were the Anabaptists. And not only did they teach that Rome was wrong in sprinkling, but they were also wrong in baptizing babies because babies can't have faith, and about 2,000 other things. Um, and so if you were an Anabaptist, your life was in grave jeopardy if you were in an area controlled by the Roman Church, which included England. So, or at least that the Roman Church was influential with it. Well, it was actually after the Reformation, but the doctrines hadn't changed. The Anglican Church basically kept the Roman doctrines, with the exception of who's in control. And that would be the king now instead of the pope. But all the rest of the doctrines were, were recognized as what Rome recognized. So, you were considered, if you taught immersion, to not just be teaching against the church. You're teaching against the king. That's treason. That's why you're in so much trouble. So you're a translator, and you know what this word means. What this word means? Immerse. Dip. Plunge. You got the image. It's, it's an image that was common in Greek mystery religions, in Persian religions, in uh, Judaism itself, uh, to, to picture a change of life. The old dying and the new rising. It was not new to Christianity. Jesus chose that, just like he chose wine and bread, as a very common thing, so people could relate to it very easily. And it meant burial and rebirth. So, to change it loses the meaning of it, as well as practicing things like baptizing people who do not have faith and cannot repent because they're too young. They don't understand it. These guys knew that. And these guys knew they were translating the Bible. This is the Word of God. They do not want to be unfaithful to God. Also, they do not want to be burned to death. Or killed in any other way, for that matter. So what do we do? We're stuck. We're, we're between a rock and a hard place. If, if we translate this the way the king wants us to, or the way the church wants us to, the problem is, we're actually being heretics. Truly. Because we're now teaching something that's not biblical. It's exactly opposite of what the Bible says. On the other hand, if we translate it the way we know it to be, we're declaring ourselves heretic, treasonous, and we're in trouble. We're going to be killed. So what would you do? You just don't translate it. You just give it English letters so you can just pronounce it in English and move on. And that's precisely what they did. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't blame these guys. I'm not sure what I would have done, but pretty sure the idea of being burned to death wouldn't have appealed to me. But unfortunately, what that did is it set us up, at least in the English-speaking world, for continued misunderstanding of what this actually is, of what the whole point of it is. Because this is what happens when someone first identifies with Jesus as Lord and Savior, identifying with his burial and his resurrection, and also picturing what you hope to happen to you in the future. And it's gone. 
And for the last 500 years, it's been gone. And we've lost that understanding. And now we have to reteach it, but to reteach it frequently, I literally go through what I just went through with you. I did yesterday with somebody who's a brand new Christian, believes, but does not understand, should I go this way or this way, because you say this, but they say this. How do you know? Well, you will choose. But my stance is you don't follow me, and you don't follow that teacher, and you don't follow this church, and you don't follow that church. You go back to the Word, and you do what the Word says. And that's what the Word says. And by the way, I was taught this in a Jesuit university. The Roman Church doesn't argue with this. They don't have any heartburn because they believe they have the authorization, the right, to change it. And that's also what I was taught in the Jesuit University. Okay? See, it can be interesting. It can even explain some of these giant differences and disagreements that are perpetuated centuries later because somebody didn't want to die a horrible death. And again, let's not be blaming these guys because we weren't put in that position. What? That word. Uh, that word. Which that word would that be? Happy Strapo. Okay. Let's answer my question. How, when you're writing in your rapid Greek, how do you make a different? You notice how she said rapid instead of sloppy. That was very nice.
Okay. Um, the more academic you are, and or the more academic your purpose, the more they would be that the, the crisp and formal. It is likely, therefore, that one book, for example, one gospel, would have been much more crisp and uh, almost uh, printed. Uh, even though it was probably bought by hand, they didn't, well, it was. They didn't have printing. Um, Whereas another gospel would probably have been a lot more informal like this. Can anybody guess which is which based on what we know of the gospels? My apologies to those who just heard me blow my nose over the microphone. Um, who? Why, why would Mark be less formal? Asking a question is not a refutation. Who is Mark? He was one of the disciples. Simple? Simple Mark? We actually don't know how well educated he was, but the the language of the text is not particularly academic. That's true. Yeah. He he was he was Jewish, put it that way. And he was writing probably to a Roman audience, but not a formal Roman audience. More to uh people like himself um, to explain the gospel to them. Now, there's another gospel that was written probably to a Roman audience. In fact, not probably. We know because he actually uh, uses a Roman word in addressing it. What? Luke. Written to most excellent Theophilus. By the way, Theophilus, listen to the word. You now know what it means, whether you think you do or not. Friend or lover of God. And it was also, it could have been simply wishful thinking, but it was something that they called people who were moving towards becoming proselytes. Gentiles who showed an affection, showed a respect for for Yahweh. So it's possible he was... He was writing to a Roman official in that regard. Why was Luke written? What was the, the purpose of Luke, for that matter, and this is a hint, Luke and Acts? To keep a complete beginning to end of the story. here. What's, what's this all about? 
Okay? And so he, because he wanted to make it complete, he doesn't start with Acts. He starts with the Gospel. And if you read Luke and then read Acts, you'll find it's part one, part two. They're, they're two documents that were written together and uh, intended as a unity. Okay? Now, Luke, then, was writing for a formal purpose, and he is a what? He is a Greek, not Jewish, doctor, which meant this is his language. He is an academic. So Luke would have written very crisp, very formal, um, if we could somehow get hold of. Why, by the way, this is my theory, why do we not have the originals other than, well, it's 2,000 years ago. Um, Personally, I think God made sure we don't have them. Yeah, people would be worshipping those stupid things. I mean, how many right now, you'd be amazed at how many pages of the Gospels are in little churches all over the world uh, claimed to be relics uh, and therefore have uh, special spiritual power. Um, it's all nonsense, of course, but hey, we've, we've got more pages of the Gospels than ever were written for the Gospels. It's just like how many, you know, how many skeletons of John the Baptist are in relics we got an army of John the Baptist skeletons, if every one of them were actually true. So, Luke's would have been that way. John, on the other hand, wrote a very, very common teenage Greek. He was not an academic. He was not even Greek. He was Jewish. And he wasn't even, like Paul, a highly educated Jew. He was a fisherman. So, the odds are pretty good. John would probably have written more like I do a lot more informally, if you will. Whereas Luke, particularly because he's meaning it uh, as, as a defense, is going to do everything possible to present this in a very positive light, and the odds are very good. Now, we're speculating. We don't know, because we don't have the original. Yes? No, when he it is possible. We don't know that. <clears throat> he wrote to the Jews at a time, uh, and we also don't know whether he was actually writing to the Jews in Jerusalem or to the diaspora, which is the Jews spread out through the Mediterranean world, almost all of whom spoke Greek, because it was a Greek-dominated world. So, you know, you'll hear a lot of people who will say, well, you know, the, the Greek is actually a Holy Spirit translation of what Matthew actually wrote. Okay, interesting. Um, We have no idea. We don't have the original. We have what we have, and it is in Greek. It is true, however, by the way, that Jesus almost certainly did not speak Greek, uh, at least to all of those Aramaic mobs and crowds, Uh, and therefore the Holy Spirit has certainly given us a translation in the Greek documents we've got of the Aramaic Jesus would have used. If you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that is not a problem at all. If you don't, well, probably shouldn't be a problem because you already don't believe in it anyway. So it becomes a non-issue. Okay. Wasn't that fun? Turn around. Or turn on. I suppose it was literally turn on, but it, it, it's what we uh, what we would say turn around. So the the two of them together change your mind and turn around, meaning act differently. There you go. Here's.
Jewish quiz. I apologize for not giving you a quiz last week. I will try to maybe make it up by giving you two quizzes someday in the future. Now, what it asks is, please take some time, copy each word. Why? Yeah, the more you write it, the more it will connect with your brain. And um, then define it in English. If you can define it in Greek, more power to you. Why in the world are you in this class? Those of you listening, they're doing what I just asked them to do. You can just listen to the music from next door. Or better yet, get the uh, same handout and do the same thing while you're listening. Translate it. In other words, give the English meaning. What does it mean to us? What? You probably have seen me dance. You just didn't know that's what it was. <laughs> Thank you for that encouragement. <laughs> Brian, did you get the uh, sheet this is based on? I emailed a. I emailed a. Okay. Um, I'll give you one if you like. I think this is from. I'm trying to remember what book I got this. Electrical aids. The Great New Testament. I think. Breaks it down into frequency. So this is 500 and more. Well, then don't use what I just handed you because it's got the meaning. Oh, okay. Okay, by the way, this is a quiz, which means quit talking to each other. I'd have had somebody hit me in the hand with some sharp object if I did that. No, they didn't. They were very gentle. The nuns were my classmates, not my professors, so it was, I was safe.
Now imagine a Spanish-speaking person going to an English-speaking seminary learning Greek. Several of them right now are doing that.
does it mean? From. Okay. Particularly, it says, with a genitive. It's one of those words that you're going, what? Genitive, what? So, it's a preposition. It is, by the fact that it's on here, one of the more common prepositions you're going to see in the New Testament. The next word starts with a delta. It's the first delta word. What is it? Dia. And it means what? Louder. Okay, can be because if it's with the accusative, if it's with the genitive, through. So, depends on the case of the noun that's with. And you know, we, we talked about the cases last week. We have not yet gotten to memorizing the endings so that you can recognize them. But um, this is going to happen to you a lot. Just as in English, there's words that, depending on the context, can mean different things. In, uh, in Greek, it's going to be more what is the grammatical ending of the word that it's matched with. Okay, the next word. Okay, and what does that mean? I. This is one, by the way, that's a bit of an exception because the ending is not a standard uh, noun ending. Uh, you will find it. There, there are uh, omegas, certainly, that second or third declension. Do you remember? I clearly do not. Yeah. <laughs> first declension is most common, second, second most, and so forth. <clears throat> what that means is it's not going to be as common. The reason it's important to know, simply to memorize the word, is that you're not then seeing it as a verb, because that omega is typically a verbal ending. So, hey, go. What does it mean? I. And what word do we get from it? Ego. Now, wait a minute. What does ego mean? Does it really? So, you know, that person is got a lot of ego. Did I just say he's got a lot of self? Well, he might be full of himself, but that's not quite the same thing. So, actually, the, the academic, if you will, meaning of the word is indeed self. Uh, go back into various documents in the 19th century, and you'll see it used frequently that way, particularly in psychological uh, volumes as the science of psychology and or pseudoscience, depending on your attitude about Freud, um, focused on the study of personhood. And so Freud speaks greatly about the ego. But today, because we tend to focus on full of self, ego tends to be more, you know, he's got a big ego, which means he thinks a lot of himself. It all comes from the same Greek word. Okay, then we've got three prepositions, all beginning with an epsilon. What's the first one? Ace or ice? Ease? You know, the ace and ice are, are going to be uh, very similar and more, uh, it's almost an, uh, um, it's like a southern accent versus the New York accent. Uh, but ace versus east is more Erasmian versus modern. What does it mean? Into. Okay. And it can mean, we, we looked at this briefly last week, if it's with uh, to, 
and the infinitive, uh, is it the infinitive? I don't know if it has to be with the infinitive. Ace-tol um, means uh, with intent. So it was with the intent of or in order to. One of the ways of saying that. But it has to have that second word with it. Okay. Next is or. No, what's another word for it? For ek. Yeah. What's the difference between ek and x? Why would you use x instead of ek? We haven't covered it, by the way, so I'm, I'm not just wondering if you know. It has everything to do with what word follows it. We have a tendency to do the same thing in English where we'll actually change a word because of how hard it is to say with certain sounds following it. And that's what they've done here. So X or X, depending on what's following it. Okay? All right. And it means? Out. And therefore, we have the next one, N, which means? Uh, ironically, yes. And by the way, that's not coincidental. The epsilon gets uh, softened, I guess, into an iota, and we have our word in. Okay? Then we go down. We've already talked about theos. So did everybody get theos? Or theos? The way the accent is. I'm pretty sure I've got the accent on the wrong syllable there. But everybody got it? Raise your hand if you got it. You know what it is. So let's see if I'm... Okay. What? What word did I skip? Let me find the right. I'm obviously going off of a different sheet. Okay. It was what? P? Oh, echo? Okay. I should have known I put that in there. All right, what is that? What? Uh, no, not really over. It, it can kind of give a connotation of that in context, but it is, I'll put it this way, it's a verb, not a preposition. It's a verb. That is a verb, but it's not the right one. I have or I hold. Okay? Have or hold. The over part, we talked about how it kind of comes out into kat-echo, catechism. So I kind of hold over or hold on to. Okay. So we did sales. And the next one, now, do you notice the breathing mark on the next one? So, yeah, so how would you say that? It's got that H sound, Hina. So, what does that mean? Hina. That? There, okay, what kind of that? 
Like that guy said that? I guess it's that. Or he said it that we would know he knows what it is. Yeah. That in order or because. Okay. So again, the word that illustrates some of the things we've been seeing in the Greek words. Depends on context, what, what, what even the word that means. Okay? And then the next one. Or, eh. The uh, Alpha Yota diphthong, eh. In modern pronunciation. Thai in Russian? Okay. So either way. And it means? No, not Kauai. This is not Hawaiian. It means and. Okay. And then kata? I'll give you a hint. It meant more than one thing. So what does it mean? Say it louder. According to. According to, so, Yeah. If you look into a Greek text for the Gospels, it will say Katayani, and that's what? No, it's not the Gospel. That's assumed. It's simply according to John. So each one, Kata, Kata is it Marcos or Marquis? Marcon? Marcon. Okay. According to Mark. Okay? But it can also mean other things. Just like that can mean other things, and it depends on the case. It can mean with, or, or excuse me, down. It can mean um, against. There's an actual, um, oh wow, there's a word. See, when you learn some of these words and you realize what it really means, and then you, all of a sudden your mind just goes weird places. Um, that's one word, by the way. I, I broke it up to show you the combination. Uh, what is that? Okay, Perry? Tomé. Or Tomé? Okay. Perry? What does it mean?
pre-circumcision were katatomi. I think it's that, but I'm not sure where the icon is. Yeah, did anybody just wince? Because if that's cut, that's around. What's this? Or against or across. So instead of these who pre-circumcision, I wish they were, instead of they, they're cut around, I wish they were, yeah, cut off. And yes, it means exactly what it sounds like. Paul could get really emotional in his polemic. Galatians is a really interesting letter. But you don't know that if you don't know this. Paul, by the way, was a master of, of uh, plays on words like that. Did it all the time. And remember, he grew up with this language. Okay, the next one. Kyrios. And it means? Sir or Lord or Big L Lord. Capital Lord Boss. Okay. I mean, just, again, just remember that in that society, as in many, for example, European societies, the word Lord does not necessarily mean Lord of the universe. We have tried to eliminate it from our vocabulary in America um, other than that which applies to God himself. So when we use the word Lord, it is almost a statement of deity. We speak of the Lord. And if you say the Lord in America... Pretty much everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. If you said that in England, they would not. They don't know if you mean, uh, I suppose the Lord in both senses would be capital L, but the way we use it would be like all capitals, whereas that would just be capital L. Does that make sense? Okay. Some of you don't act like it makes sense, but I'm going to move on anyway. <laughs> the next one. Lego. Lego. And no, this has nothing to do with little plastic pieces. Whole different language route. So what does this mean? I say, or I speak. Okay. And then the next one? Me, or me. And it means? It means no, or less, or no, or not. And we talk about the fact that if it is with who, which is one of the vocabulary words I gave you, but I didn't put it on the, the quiz, uh, umi is a, a colloquialism that Paul uses, and it, it's like, no, never. It's, it's not a double negative canceling each other out. It's a double negative almost magnifying each other. Okay. Um, and then the next one. Kote. And what does that mean? Hint, it's a synonym of something we've already seen. Maybe even two already seen. It means that in the Timian sense. Uh, or in order that, because, okay? Then we have 
a trio. Pas, pasa, pasa, excuse me, and pan. All. Or each, or, or every. Um, not each, I don't think. Is every and all. So, um, what is... What is that word? Penteos. Penteos. What does it mean? It's actually because I just made it up. I didn't make it up. I just haven't seen it spelled. I'm, I have the ending wrong. E? It is plural. That's not. I think that would be it. Not the E. And that means what? English? Okay. It actually comes into English as a Greek word, pantheon. But it, you're correct. That is actually a Greek word, which means all the gods. So the pantheon in Greece is a temple that was literally dedicated for all gods rather than just one. And pantheistic is somebody who believes in all the gods. The Greeks were pantheistic. The Romans were pantheistic. Were the Jews? Were the Jews pantheistic? Uh, pick one. Won't change the meaning in this. No. Because the early Hebrews were all descended from Abraham. Hebrew means a descendant of Abraham. put to death, but in essence, well, they didn't exist yet, I said if they were in law. Um, but you see the same thing actually under, say, Solomon, um, and, and then you see why that was in the law not to do that. The Jews were octaos, okay, or were they? See, the Greeks thought they were, and the Romans thought they were, and the Romans persecuted them for it. What does octaos mean? And yes, it's exactly what you think it means when you're looking at the English. No God, atheist. So the Romans persecuted the Jews and the Christians, not because they were Jews or Christians, but because they were atheists. And you say, wait a minute, they weren't atheists, they believed in God. Yes, a God, one God, singular, not all the gods. And therefore, they offended all but the one. Now, if you've got a thousand gods, and only one of them is anywhere near happy with you, what's your life likely to be like? And that was the theory. We cannot afford to have all the gods angry with us. And if things are going bad, we can assume, and, and granted part of this was simply politics and cynicism, but on the part of the population, they really believe this. We can assume it's because these people who only believe in one God and do not worship the other gods have offended all the other gods, and the other gods are basically ganging up on us, and that's why things are going so bad. So what do we do? We get rid of these people. 
because they're the ones that are getting the gods all angry at us. And they would do horrible things to those people because they believed those people were responsible for all the bad things happening to them. So pan, the e, or ah. What does ah mean, by the way, in this context? It's not on the list, but... Yeah, um, not. It's, an, it's a negation, but it's only in the prefix form. So, agnosko. Uh, Without knowledge, no knowledge. And it comes into English uh, as agnostic. And again, it's a Greek word that we just gave English letters to, but it means somebody who claims to be without knowledge. In other words, I don't know. If you say you're agnostic, you're saying I don't know. So is there a God? Um, if you say you're atheist, no, there is not. If you're a theist, by the way, theist does not mean Christian. Most of the founding fathers of the United States were theists. They were not necessarily Christian. They believed there was a God, but their version of God would not match yours. Um, but then, if I, if I say I don't know, then that's agnostic or agnostic. Okay? Of course. Yeah, we apply it uh, mostly to, to deity. Uh, whereas the word itself has nothing to do with the object of your lack of knowledge. Okay? All right. Yeah, oh, we talked about this a couple times, so you're long uh, acquainted with this. What is Biel? Do, make, um, in present, practice, even mean kind of lean, but only in the sense of, you know, you lean toward. Um, it can be with. Prepositions have a tendency to sort of ooze and become things that are similar. All right, and then finally, what's the last one? Su or si. Modern pronunciation, epsilon, hard e sound. And it means you. Okay. Ego. Si. I don't have. Um, oh, there, there it is. Piel. The Omicron Epsilon, uh, Omicron Iota is a diphthong. So in modern Greece, it's uh, basically the Omicron goes away. And the Epsilon, I keep wanting to say Epsilon. The iota is a hard E sound, so P for the first three letters, and then E-O. Okay? And you say Poyao. Poyao. So instead of E, it would be A sound for the epsilon. Poyao. Poyao. See, I stumble over yours as much as you stumble over mine. Okay. How did you do? How many of you got half of them right? Okay. I'm going to say that again just, just to make sure you're paying attention and you're actually participating. How many of you got half of them right? Okay. And how many of you got a quarter of them right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
How many have got them all right? No, we didn't do that. Okay. All right. Um, I did this to review them, but also just to emphasize this is important. We're going to keep coming back to these. I'm not going to introduce another vocabulary list tonight. Probably will next week. So keep working on this. You'll never stop. On my desk today is a set of flashcards I made uh, how many decades ago, uh, mostly with this, uh, these and words uh, from the next few lists that I'm going to give you, um, the ones that I tended to not immediately pick up. I just made the flashcards on the ones that I don't know because those are the ones I needed to practice. And I would encourage you to do that. If you make flashcards for all of these, uh, throw that list away. You probably are not going to not know that because of its function in English. So focus on the ones you don't know. Would you like to share that with a class? <laughs> okay. We're not trying to make you sad. So. Okay, last week uh, we talked about types and use of case. Um, what? Yes, please. Go ahead and pass that around now. Pretty sure we're all here. Um, and, and the question was asked, is there a definition of simply the word accusative or ablative, etc.? And the problem is the definition is pretty much what we're saying because it, it is defined in its use. I don't know of another word or another use of the word ablative other than grammatical case. Nominative, even. Um, I can think of, of the use of a word that is of a, the same root, but it's not quite the same thing. Nominal, nominate. I mean, it does come from the same thing, which has to do with name. But nominative refers specifically to a grammatical case. So what I did do is think, stop, stop myself for a moment and try to simplify this to say, okay, is there a way of of describing these that might help you uh, classify things easier. Um, if this helps, great. If it doesn't, then throw it away very quickly and don't let it muddle you up. All right? Nominative refers to a noun in subject. It is the subject. Okay? It can be a subject um, formally or it can be a subject within the predicate but it is a subject. Okay? Accusative marks the object. It is not the only case that has to do with object, but it is the one that focuses on the object. Genitive has to do with a couple of things. Possession, Measure, so possession, um, it is the house of Katie, it means Katie's house, okay? Measure, a pound of uh, whatever you have a pound of, pound of muscle, let's think positively, okay? Or origin, he is of America. A bit formal, but we still use it in some ways. Okay? Ablative. 
It is from the Latin to carry, and so it has to do with carrying or conveyance, um, and that's a real stretch. Now remember, the way we use them in Kine Greek is, is not the original way. It's a way that it has evolved over, at this time, at least a century, or not a century, a millennium or so of use of Greek. The Greek language had been around a long time before Kine Greek. Dative pertaining to giving or receiving. So either the giving or the reception of that which is given. Locative has to do with placement, whether it's in uh, space or time. Instrumental has to do with the means. Means. An instrument, even a mu when you think of instrument, what do you think of? Music, typically. Um, it is the means of making a sound. Okay? Uh, I'm thinking right now of surgical instruments. It is the means of accomplishing a specific uh, task. And so it's, it's an instrument in that sense. Okay? So it all comes down to means. And then, of course, vocative is simply direct. It, it's address. Okay? Now, again, if that helps, I, I, I understand fully that as you look at all of these different types, for example, of genitive, what I just said may or may not sound right to you because I'm telling you what the word starts off meaning, not what they did with it. So, and the fact is that genitive then becomes a grammatical concept applied to different languages, and different languages use it in a different way. So here's what really happens is grammarians or linguists look at a language that simply has a very different structure than what they're used to, and they need a word to describe the function of something happening in that language, so they pick a word that's closest in what they do to what they're observing. It may or may not be exactly the same thing. So Greek genitive may not be the same as English genitive or Spanish or French or uh, particularly Korean or Mandarin where you've got different roots of the language. Is that making sense? Any questions about that that I can answer? Don't ask me questions I can't answer. Okay, let's take a short break. Ten minutes, stretch. Run the restroom if you need to. Um, then we're going to come back and we'll uh, talk about verbs. After tonight, by the way, we get into the fun stuff. If that's what that is, then what's it look like in Greek? And we start giving you the endings. <laughs> on, and I haven't recorded the sarcasm that's come out just before this. <clears throat> I'm simply making note of the fact that it did exist. Okay, verbs. Let's talk a little bit um, more about verbs. Uh, and in this case, I want to talk specific tenses, moods, voices, and persons. Okay? I'm going to give you examples. I'm going to give you um, standard examples. Uh, yes, I'm about to hand you the, the handout. Um, and as I do this, understand, everything has exceptions, okay? So, except that everything has exceptions. 
Well, there's probably an exception to it, but I don't even want to go there because my head hurts. So we're just going to go with that. Okay? Um, and once again, some of you are conversant uh, more than others, perhaps, with English meanings of some of these things. We have to be careful because you're not studying English, and even if you were, it frequently is lacking. For example, as we begin, verbs, the tense. Tense of the verb describes the function um, or function is not quite the right word. How the how the verb is being used in the uh, the context. Okay. So present tense sounds like it means present, right? I mean, gee, where would I have gotten that? But the problem is present tense is not always about now. So we talked about this briefly before, that present focuses on time as linear. It means all those dots, not one of them. So you just picture that line as dots. It's all of them. And by the way, it can also go this way or both. Okay? So, I am eating. What is that? Present is frequently with a participle, not always. It is present, and, and it is not at a specific point in time, because if it's a specific point in time, then as soon as I say it, it's done. Because it's that point, and that point's gone now, right? And yet, especially if it's me, uh, I'm still eating. Because it takes me a long time, okay? So I am eating. I am working. I am continuing. So I am doing the Lord's will. In the context, it is ongoing. And one of the idiom in the Greek is that comes to be seen as not just um, a statement of fact, but a statement of intent and even practice. And so, frequently, it can actually be translated, I am practicing the Lord's will. Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, piao, you remember the verb, we just talked about it, in the do, but present tense, the will of the Father. So in that case, are doing the will of the Father. Well, we know that doesn't mean somebody who's, who's earning their place in the inheritance of the kingdom, uh, because Scripture makes it real clear that's not what happens. So it becomes an understanding of we're, this is the person who is continuing to practice. And, and practice is important because it lets some of us off the hook when we blow it, because we do blow it. How do we blow it? Hopefully not present. Okay? So we blow it in the aorist.
time as punctiliar, which means as a point. So if time could be blown up, if that line I just drew could be blown up as a series of these points in time, I mean so close to each other that you literally cannot imagine another point of time in between them, then Eris is one of those. And the bigger you consider these points of time, it might be one of these instead of the whole thing. So, let's say my sin is angry or anger. Have you known people who are angry people? What tense is that? This present. Are angry. And that's just, that's, that's a continual thing. Have you known people like this? Is that okay? Biblically, it's not okay. Not to mention that we don't like it. Believe it or not, there's some people who do. There's some people, I mean, I've, I've had people who have justified behavior, Christians, by simply saying to me, yes, but I'm angry. As though identifying the emotion somehow says it's okay. What if I was an adulterer and you said, Randy, you're an adulterer. What are you doing? And I said, yeah, but I'm lustful. Well, yeah, we sort of figured that out. You're still an adulterer. See, we don't, we don't excuse it. What if I'm a thief? Randy, you're a thief. You stole. Yeah, I know, but I'm greedy. <laughs> See? So I am angry is a statement of ongoing condition. And it needs to be repented of. Because the scripture says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And therefore, we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Okay? On the other hand, what if my sin is anger and I'm practicing not being angry? And I'm doing pretty well at it, but last night when I was driving home... I got angry and yelled at a guy. What tense is that? That's there. See, at that point in time, when I was driving home, and this person demonstrated his entire lack of understanding of any common safety rules or care for human life, um, and almost killed me on the freeway, at that point, I exhibited anger towards him. I didn't just feel it. And I almost definitely acted on it. But it's at the point. Now can we see the difference in the sin? And so when John says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's not saying. So, okay, you're, you're living in an adulterous relationship. And you can keep doing that, but you need to confess it so that Jesus will forgive you and clean you up. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. None of us would buy that. We would, we would in the first place, we would reject the legitimacy of the confession. Because confession doesn't mean admit. It's another one of the reasons why knowing the Greek is helpful. Is that sloppy enough for you? Yeah? 
Yeah, that's a little too sloppy because I, I lifted it off of there. That's a me. Okay? Homologia. That's the word confession. What does it mean? Think of, think of just what you know already. Log, logia? Logos? To, well, it, it's word, concept, idea. Um, and I suspect, although I haven't done that etymological study, that it is indeed related to lego, which is to speak. Because that would be the, the content and the lego would be the verb. Um, homo has a hard breathing mark, which means what? Homo. What does homo mean? <coughs> Same. So we know it. I mean, it, it's just saying homo is a colloquialism in American for what? For homosexual. Same sex, meaning somebody who is sexually active with the same sex. But it doesn't have anything to do with sex. The word homo is simply a, uh, a word that means the same. So it means to, to have the same idea or to speak the same. To confess is to agree with. When I confess to God, I'm agreeing with him. I'm doing it and it's wrong. I'm not simply saying, yep, did it. That's what we think of in America, in, in, in our law. So when the Bible talks about confessing, we need to understand that. Okay? And, and again, the verbs, the, the tense of the verbs, tell us whether that's happening or not. Because if I simply said, yep, I did it, so, <laughs> that, that's not confession in the sense of the, the scriptural term. Scriptural term has a connotation that that confession leads to repentance. And, and I'm not repenting in any way. Right? Is it making sense? Or did I just muddy it up too much? I'm, just, I'm getting lots of stares and or avoidance of eye contact. How do I interpret this? Okay, I'll move on because you're not telling me otherwise. Future. Does action not yet happening, but foreseen in the future. I will eat. I ate. I am eating. I will eat. It is almost, by definition, subjective and uh, subjunctive, and yet it's not, technically. We'll, we'll cover that in just a minute. Uh, the point being, when I say I will eat, I'm being a little cocky about it since I don't know the future. So I plan to eat, maybe, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen, right? I will, I will uh, build a barn and uh, put my harvest in there and reap my wealth and go live and uh, to a delightful age and have a great lifestyle. And Jesus says, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. How dare you say, I will do this. Instead, say, if the Lord wills. Recognizing we, we can't control that. Okay, so future is always hypothetical, but it's about what has not happened yet. Perfect is that which has happened, and the emphasis isn't on uh, being punctiliar or being linear, it's on completion. I have eaten. Now, I might have eaten for a long period of time. Or I might have eaten one giant bite and that was it. But I have eaten. Does that make sense? So it, the, the emphasis on the fact it's done. And then there's imperfect, which means it's not done. It is continuing, but in the past. 
I was eating. Okay. Are you still eating? Or are you done? We don't know. It's imperfect. Does all that make sense? Okay. Those are the basic tenses that we're going to run into. You will also run into mood. So, for example, the most common mood is indicative, which either makes a statement or, if it's interrogative, asks a question. So, back to the eating. I'm eating is indicative. I'm simply making a statement. Okay? Are you eating? See, I don't know. I need to find something out. So that is interrogative, but it's still indicative. Pretty much, I don't know if all questions, most questions, I'll, I'll, I'll pad my bet here. Most questions are going to be indicative. But I can't think of an example offhand. That's not. Imperative. It is imperative that you stop at the stop sign. So, what does that mean? It means you have to do it. It's not a suggestion. You have to do it. So, imperative expresses a command. Okay? Eat your food. Not likely something an adult would say to another adult, but my suspicion is many of us have said something similar to people who are much smaller than we are. So any command is imperative. It will not always sound quite so direct, but if it's a command, it's imperative. Subjunctive. I used that word a minute ago. How many of you recognized it and knew what I meant? Yeah, it's, it's just not a word we use with regard to English grammar, and yet we do use the concept. We just don't even talk about it. Subjunctive carries the idea of uncertainty, um, or sometimes emotional coloring. Mostly it's the uncertainty. So when I say I will eat, I'm saying it, I said it was inherently in, uh, subjunctive. Well, that's not technically true, but it is accurate. It's subjunctive in the sense that I don't know the future, so I will eat. Well, maybe you will and maybe you won't. So we don't know yet. So when it's in subjunctive mood, it's a statement um, that, that makes it more subjunctive. Should you eat in the future, make sure you don't eat stuff that's sour or, or spoiled. So the, the first part is not a question, it's should you eat, is if that happens, if that, if that comes about. Does that make sense? All right, now I gave two other um, examples of this. One is it can be a deliberative question. Where shall we go? Or the ever famous, okay, where should we eat? How many of you have run into that one? Yeah. I don't know where you want to eat. I don't know where you want to eat. Okay. That's subjunctive because it hasn't happened yet. And in this case, because it hasn't happened, it's, it's something we want to happen, so we've got to decide it, so it's deliberative. All right? But it can also be hortatory. Um, let us go to Jerusalem. So it's like it, it's almost an imperative um, it can be, let us go to Jerusalem, can be an imperative. It's, it's a more formal way. 
but let us go to Jerusalem in a, a little bit more flowery speech um, is a suggestion rather than a command. It hasn't happened. Uh, so where shall we eat? Well, let's, let's go to Olive Garden. Now, that may be where we end up, or I may be greeted with a chorus of, are you kidding me? I hate Olive Garden. I don't want to go there. And we never end up there. So that's what makes it subjunctive. Is that clear? The, the, the one main word that has to do with the mood of subjunctive is uncertain. Okay. Optative. Expresses potential or wish. So the optative of wish, may it never be. May you be happy. May the road rise to meet you. You ever heard that one? I'm not going to sing it. You're okay. Don't worry about it. Um, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm hoping that will happen for you. Okay? The, the potential optative, they might go tomorrow. So the, in English, it's almost always going to have the word might. Or perhaps. So that would be optative mood. Infinitive is direction. Now, infinitive um, generally is going to be uh, with a um, preposition. In fact, I can't think of it being without a preposition. So it expresses up, down, around, to, back, forth, whatever. That's infinitive. Why are these things important? Well, how about simple imperative? Imperative sounds pretty obvious, right? Pretty simple. What does imperative mean? Okay. What if it's not quite literal? What if it's a command because it's imperative, but in the context, pretty obvious, I'm not really pretending I'm ordering somebody. What, what would then the sense of an imperative be? All right, let me give you an example. Give us today our daily bread. Indicative? Subjunctive? What is it? It's actually imperative. Now, the reason I know that is because I know the Greek ending Remember, give us today our daily bread is a translation. It is a demand. Give us our bread. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us. It's not a question. It's a demand. It's imperative. Now, Jesus is Lord of the universe, and he himself says this. He is God incarnate, and we're, he's training us to demand things of him. Really? How many of you believe he's really meaning for us to become demanding of him? Okay, so if that's not, if we're going to allow the rest of the context of Scripture to say, now that can't be it, then what is he saying? Tell him what you... All right, be straightforward. What else? Be persistent. Is it not the same one who says, 
the, the stories about the guy who gets the righteous judgment, finally, from the unrighteous judge, not because the judge all of a sudden became righteous, but because he wanted to get the guy off his back. Which, by the way, does not mean God is unrighteous, but he wants you off his back. It, it's simply illustrating persistence. So there, there's a certain intensity, be intense about this, that is being communicated. And if we, if, if we do not, as we usually do not, think of it as imperative, but instead see it almost as indicative as a question, please give us a request, we lose this, this sense of immediacy, urgency, intensity that Jesus himself is putting into it for us. And it also allows us to say that I know that you are able to do this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's oh, yes. Enough. One, one does not say that without an assumption that it's possible. It's not a suggestion. It must be. It, it, I'm sorry? It's not a suggestion. It must be. Yes. It, it is not a suggestion. Now, I, that's why I say I think it's, it sort of falls short of must be in the sense that in this context, we know, of course, we're talking to the Lord of the universe. The only reason we would even dare to say such a thing is he's the one who's said to. He said, talk to me, talk to the Father this way. Why? Because the Father knows what you need even before you, you tell him. He wants you to come and talk to him this way. Like a father wants a little child to come and say, Daddy, I'm hungry. Which is a statement of insistence. And it takes a long time before that becomes a whine. It's usually an in-your-face to start with. Okay, let's move on to voice. Voice is a, a fairly simple uh, concept. Active, passive, and middle. Active is the subject is the one doing the action. Okay? So, go back to baptism. I am baptizing. So, if I'm, I'm actually dipping people into the water, or for that matter, dipping uh, dishes into the water and rinsing them and you know, scrubbing them like that, I am baptizing. That is the, that's the word you would use for that. Okay? Because I'm the one doing it. Now, on the other hand, Dead people do not bury themselves. And baptism, in a Christian sense, Jewish proselyte sense, um, Islamic sense, uh, all the different groups that use baptism, all of them are using that as a symbol of a person dying as they are and, and rising as a new person. So when I put somebody into a baptistry pool, or even if I'm doing it in a pond or a stream or ocean, uh, I will not go in the ocean and baptize people because I will not be killed by a shark while I am baptizing. I simply do not see it as godly. But we'll do the stream thing, but very quickly because I think sharks can be in streams too. And I prefer the baptismal because I don't say that they can't be in there, but I can see if they are very quickly. Are you gonna, you're going to try to take me on a rabbit trail somewhere, aren't you? Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I have never been bitten by a shark. Now tell me just how irrational. I, I don't have a fear. I have a simple 
means of operating that guarantees a conclusion that I will not be bitten by a shark. And it works. I'm just saying. All you surfer types, you know. I don't. I, I prefer not the beach. I, the rocks or the pier, um, you know, not, no. Because the water comes up. I don't like sand either. When you get down to it, because there's sand sharks, you know. I just threw that one in for free. <laughs> okay. So the, we're back to the dead people. The dead people do not baptize themselves. So I will always tell people, please, just relax, let me baptize you, because otherwise they'll launch themselves, and I'm like trying to hold on to them, because they think they're going to do this, and the next thing you know, they're five feet that way, and, and it's very entertaining, but not really what we're trying to do. So just let me do this, because you're dead. I will bury you. I will raise you. And then you can walk away, because now you're back in life, see? So dead people, by definition, are not active. They're passive. Things are done to the body, dead bodies. There, I avoided a theological upheaval. Just the bodies. Okay? And then there's the middle. The middle is where the subject acts on the subject. Okay? So I'm getting myself baptized. Or, in the imperative, get yourself baptized, as we talked about Peter's saying in Acts 2. So I'm, I'm the subject, I'm doing the action, getting myself baptized. I'm saying it in such a way that it comes across as I'm doing the action, but clearly I'm not always doing the action in that sense. Now, another one might be, um, I'm, I'm cutting my hair. Now that one is, is total, because I'm, it, it is actually my hair, and I actually, I'm not finding, so I'm not getting my hair cut. That would be sort of metal. It would technically be metal, but the reality is if I'm getting my hair cut, I'm probably finding someone else to do it, right? But if I'm cutting my hair, I'm cutting, but it's mine. So there's a reflexive action going on. Does that make sense? Okay. It becomes very interesting when you look at commands and you find that commands that you think are active or passive are indeed reflexive because it kind of changes the nature of what we're doing. All right. And then there's person, first, second, and third. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's funny. I put them instead of third. I just noticed I did that. Okay. First is me, we, I. It's, it's myself. Okay. But plural would be we. So it's myself plus you, or any number of yous, okay? Second is you, but it could be you, or it could be you in English, because we have one word for singular and plural in the second. The Greek does not do that. So when the English word you is in a translation, and you're wondering, okay, is that one person, or is that all of them, if you go back to the Greek text, you will know, because it's, it's going to be either singular or plural, and it's going to be a different word in the Greek for those two. Does that make sense? So it clarifies it for us. And then the them is supposed to say third, sorry about that, and third would be him, her, or them would be the plural. Um, 
No, no, it couldn't be him's or hers. What? Well, a singular would be he, but him is also. Because it's, it's not me and it's not you, it's him. It's not me, it's not you, it's her. So, yeah, it's, it's, you're looking at what case, and I'm looking at person. So, I, I, I didn't give you all of the forms here. Because if I did that, you'd have a page for each one of these. Does that make sense? So yes, he, she, or it. And it, by the way, would be then um, neuter. And last week we talked about gender. So neuter is not male, not female. Them would be, don't know. It could be neuter. In the Greek, you will know, except when the ending is the same for neuter and one of the others, which does happen every now and then, just to keep us on our toes. Okay, any question about all of this stuff and how the verbs will be translated? Okay. There's a word called parsing. And what we're really trying to do here is get you to the point where you're comfortable parsing a verb or for that matter reading what someone else has done when they parsed a verb, which is probably more likely. Because you're gonna you're gonna run into verbs in the text. And parsing is you're looking at the ending and by the way <coughs> excuse me, not just the ending, that's the primary way, but sometimes also the prefix and sometimes it actually changes the root itself slightly, just as it does sometimes in English. I was, we were. So parsing is going to look at all of that and determine whether it is present, aorist, future, perfect, imperfect, uh, what mood it is, what voice it is, what person it is. Um, and it's going to tell you whether it is also a participle. In English, basically, a participle is identified by one simple way that takes care of almost all of them. I'm waiting. When I said I was waiting, that was a big hint. What, what identifies a participle in English? How do we know it's a participle? No. I'm waiting. ING. If ING is on it, it's a participle. And, I, and most of the time, if it's a participle, ING is on it. Okay? So when we're using that, expression of a verb. I wait, I am waiting. It's present participle. And it, in English, clearly gives you that linear feel. Okay? So present itself is linear, but a present participle is like an emphasis of a linear. It's even more linear in the Greek. So when we're translating it, you get a much clearer feel of that linear action going on. Parse, parsing it is simply analyzing all of those and listing all of those things. 
Now, there's three ways that happens. One is you memorize every ending, every prefix, every aberration of the root and recognize looking at it so that you can say it's all these things. You want to do that? Because I know where to send you if you want to do that. But it ain't going to happen here. Because I said to you up front, I've forgotten most of that, and I'm not, I, I don't really have any desire to rememorize it. I don't have time for that. So if you don't have time for that, then there's two other ways that you can do it. One of them is to read um, a book, um, and usually it's going to be something like an analytical concordance or an analytical lexicon. And uh, by the way, a, a, a commentary doing it is the same thing. It's just somebody else did that and reported it for you. So an analytical concordance or lexicon is, uh, a lexicon is simply a list of the words, but it's a list of every ending or every combination of prefix and ending and change of the root found in the New Testament. And the parsing of every single one of those. So you're going to look not just for the root, you're going to look at every single letter, and by the way, accents, because every now and then that makes a difference. And uh, make sure you've got the right one as you're looking it up. How do you look a word up in a lexicon? Remember what a lexicon is? Alphabetically? Yeah, alphabetically. Exactly the way you look it up in an English dictionary. A lexicon is simply a fancy word for dictionary, and it's usually what we refer to for a Greek dictionary. So you look it up by memorizing the alphabet, which is one of the reasons that I was insistent on that being one of the first things that we do. And the more conversant you are with the order of the alphabet, the quicker you can look things up, just like English. How many of you remember uh, being in school and or maybe yesterday um, wanting to look something up and singing the alphabet song to yourself so you can remember where, right, where in it does it go? What comes before what? Okay, well, that's why I said and or yesterday. Yeah, which one was which? Um, don't, don't not do that. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I would, I would encourage you to memorize it, but if you're questioning yourself, and you will unless you do this a lot, then go back and look it up. And if you've got a, a, some sort of a mnemonic device, like a song, um, I, I apologize that I did not come with a, a song with all the Greek letters. Yeah, and if you try to put the English song to the... Yeah, it's going to be awkward. Oh, man. I, I sat yeah. here that night, and I, the first night that you were testing us, testing us on the alphabet, and all I could do was go through the... Okay, we're done. Yeah. Yep. Oh, we did. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm quite sure there's more than one. Yeah. Like I said, there's more than one because there's hundreds of years of Greek students trying to figure out how to remember this. Um, I still say the simplest way is just memorize it and then, you know, keep a list of it somewhere if you wish and check it. It's not hard to do. Now, the, here's the other way to parse, and I think it is, personally, I think it's the best way. But it does require that you invest a little bit. I have a program. And I type in the text 
And I can, I can have, typically what I have is New American Standard, New International, and the Greek text for a New Testament passage. Uh, but I can choose as many uh, English translations alongside the Greek as I want. But then for the Greek one, if I simply put my cursor over the word, it parses it for me like that, and a bubble pops up, and there it is. I find that a delightful way to do it. And I don't think it's cheating in the least. My software is PC Study Bible. I'm pretty sure uh, Logos by Hermeneutica does the same thing. Uh, Logos, Logos does have a PC version, and PC Study Bible, contrary to its name, now has a Mac version. I wouldn't do that if I were you. If you have a Mac, go with Logos, and if you have a PC, go with PC Study Bible, because trust me, neither of them is so advanced that they did a great job of preparing for the other platform or the other operating system. Uh, but they do basically the same thing. So, you know, it is, it is a very, very useful thing to know at a glance, just like that, if you're, if you're not remembering. You will, if you do some of the memorization we're going to give you a chance to do, you will be able to recognize the more basic ones. But the problem is, like English, well, way more than English, really. There's not just one declension. Uh, no, declension would be nouns. Um, brain crease, what's the word I'm looking for? The verb, um, conjugation, thank you. There's not just one conjugation. Uh, there's numerous of them. And the, the further down the road you get, the rarer that is. In, but there's a lot of those. And so in the New Testament, we're looking at that one and we're not recognizing it. So, okay, feel free to spend, you know, an hour figuring it out or uh, a minute looking it up in an uh, analytical concordance or lexicon or a second putting your cursor over. If you wish an analytical concordance or lexicon, may I suggest you do not go get one yet unless, of course, you're on Amazon and you see one for $2, in which case... Like, what do you got to lose? But um, I will bring mine back in in a few weeks, and we will spend time playing with them and giving you a chance to see, you know, does this work easily for me? Do I like this? And if you do, then get on Amazon and buy it used. I know some of you guys heard me say that before, but these tools are literally hundreds of years old, most of them. Um, there's absolutely no reason in the world to buy a brand new version of it and pay brand new prices because the ones that have been around, I've got some that are literally, they themselves are as old as I am. I mean, the binding on the book is as old as I am. The stuff inside is the same as if I buy a brand new one today, so why would I pay that price? Okay? But get used to the tool first. Okay? So that's going to be coming, and I am going to give you the more common conjugations so that you can see the most common endings and get used to recognizing those. Those are going to be in the weeks to come. Uh, we're going to start with nouns for the declensions of the nouns, which is the noun version of a conjugation. Um, and again, it's going to be the same thing. I'm going to give you the more common ones so that you get used to them. There is no way in the world in the time we've got that I can even introduce to you all of them. So next week, we'll pick back up again. Um, may well, uh, I, I will be ready to give you another vocab sheet 
I'll just check in with you at the beginning. I don't know if I'll actually take the time like we did today with a with quiz, but uh, find out where you are with the vocabulary. And if you guys are feeling ready for it, then I'll give you the one that's 250 to 500 occurrences. And then we'll talk about noun endings and at the same time, articles. Because articles, most of the time, agree with noun endings. I say most of the time, the most common, unfortunately, is one of the exceptions. So, oh, let's think of a noun that's first declension. Maybe the most important noun. What is that? Christos. It means? Christ. Which means? I mean, all you just did is give me English letters, folks. Messiah. Now you gave me an Aramaic Hebrew word for the English letters. Anointed. Okay. And by inference, the anointed is chosen. So the anointed one or the chosen one. That's what the Christ. Christ is not a last name. Christian is, just saying, but Christ is not. Christ is title. So it's Jesus the Christ. So, yeah, Christus. Oh, Christos. Now, the problem with that is it's already breaking a rule I'm going to introduce to you, and that is that the, uh, the um, article in front of it is going to be in agreement with the ending. But it's not, because it's not os Christos, ever. That just, you're just not going to see that. So um, I suspect, and I haven't ever checked it, I'm not sure if there's a means to check it, I suspect that it started as os Christos. And, and just because of laziness of speech, which is how most changes in language occur, the, the sigma was dropped. But who knows? So when you see that Omicron sigma, that is um, nominative singular. And that's the standard and most common ending for a noun, which means that is going to be the most common nominative singular article. But did you catch what I just said? Well, and, and what I just implied, and it is accurate, is the articles will be as varied as the noun endings. So you're going to have all sorts of different articles, and they're going to be matching the noun endings. So in order to learn the articles, you have to learn the noun endings. But once you've done that, then you recognize both the article and the ending, and it's like a double signature for what it is you're dealing with. Make sense? Okay. I'm going to actually give you extra time. Um, you weren't here last time. And because of my schedule tomorrow, we're, we're leaving early. That's the privilege of a professor. I love it. So it's 845, but I've already been told that none of you would be yelling and screaming at me if we left early. So thank you. Don't drop that. And we turn this off. Nobody told me to turn this on, by the way.